You know, theologians and church folks sometimes quibble about whether Jesus really were both human and divine. And many point to miraculous things Jesus did as proof of his divinity. Well, for my part, I agree that Jesus was also divine, but I'd say that moments such as these, that is, moments when Jesus let his life speak for him, moments when Jesus let the external power of God be the deciding factor for where others would indeed follow his way, I'd say that moments such as these are all the proof we need to affirm that Jesus was in some way different and far superior to the normal human being. The other day, April and I were having a conversation with James and Beth Bennett when the topic of sailboats came up. And as we were talking, Beth asked me if I'd ever ridden on a sailboat. And I answered her that yes, once when I was a child, I rode on a sailboat. And as I reflected on that long ago moment, a memory suddenly came back to me that I had not thought about for at least 30 years. And here is that memory. My family was at the beach at the time, and my grandfather had rented a sailboat and had invited a few of the kids with whom I'd been playing at the beach to join us on it. And much to my dismay, a boy whom I happened to be playing with in the moment, an older boy whose foul language had scandalized me, and whose bullish nature had intimidated me all week, to my great dismay, this boy replied that, yes, he'd love to join us. And so he did, along with a few other boys I'd met at the beach and had spent the last week playing with. Well, to understand why I tell you this story, you must understand this. This boy was a bully. This was my first experience with a bully. Perhaps 12 years old, while the rest of us were about eight, this boy made constant threats about beating people up. And he called us names that made us feel weak and ineffectual. And he went on and on with boasting of his own exploits and with telling us about how tough and how experienced he was. And we all feared him while we were all simultaneously impressed by him. Well, so it was that my grandfather, God rest his soul, invited this boy to join us for a sailboat ride. And so, with a handful of us aboard, my grandfather and my dad pushed the boat out beyond the breakers, and we set sail, and we had a great time. Only it wasn't quite as simple as that. For about three minutes into the experience, after we'd made it fast the first wave of breakers, 
And we're just about to encounter the second wave of breakers. The bully boys started going berserk. I mean, going nuts. He began screaming and crying and begging my dad and my grandfather to stop the boat, to turn it around, to take him back. And I remember it taking me about five full seconds to fully process what was happening. And then finally, to my great astonishment, I suddenly realized he's scared. And not only is he scared, but he's a wimp. And while my dad and my grandfather dutifully, though with great annoyance, returned this boy to the shore, I tell you all of this so as to now tell you this. This was the first time in my life that I came face to face with an important truth, which is that just because someone talks a big game does not mean that the lives they are living can back them up. Be imitators of me, Paul writes to the Corinthians in today's epistle lesson. Be imitators of me. This injunction is a follow-up to what we read last week when Paul writes to the Corinthians about not being divided amongst themselves and about not being carried away by or persuaded by provocative teachers or eloquent orators. For I, Paul wrote to them at the beginning of this letter, I came to you not with lofty words... No, Paul wrote, my speech and my proclamation were a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. That's a direct quote from the scripture. And so, in other words, Paul was saying there, I didn't inspire some sense of spirituality in you by speaking syrupy sweet words. I didn't play to your ego by dressing my message up in sophisticated philosophical language. I didn't inflame your partisan passions by speaking provocative words that offered divine sanctions to your ideological tendencies. No, he's writing, I came to you and I simply told you that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and was resurrected. And that because he was, a new reality has been opened. And that because of him, we too shall one day rise from the dead and dwell with him in that reality forevermore. And then Paul is writing, I simply showed you what living now in light of that new reality looks like. 
I served you. I prayed with and for you. I helped you in whatever ways I could. I spoke words to you designed to build you up and not tear you down. I strengthened your faith by teaching you whatever wholesome and becoming things I know. I taught you to welcome into your midst those who were different than you. I told you to listen to one another and treat one another fairly. And I showed you what listening to one another and treating one another fairly looks like. I didn't browbeat you for your slowness to understand these things and apply them. I didn't make a big show of how righteous or how enlightened I am because these are things I believe in practice. That, Paul was in effect saying early in this letter, was what I did and said when I was with you. And so, he writes now, be imitators, be imitators of me. Here's the thing that we have to understand about 1 Corinthians. Here's the thing that we have to understand about all of the talk in this letter, particularly early in this letter, about wisdom and eloquence and rhetorical persuasiveness. We have to understand that in this letter, Paul is contrasting the simple power of the gospel proclamation with the seductive power of wisdom and eloquence and human persuasiveness. We have to understand that Paul is doing this because the Corinthians have now been carried away and have been split into factions by rival teachers and by their various commendable rhetorical talents. Some of them silver-tongued, some of them fiery-tongued, some of them learned-tongued, some of them spiritually-tongued. And 1 Corinthians is born of Paul trying to remind the Corinthians that what brought them together in the first place and the only thing that can continue to bind them together and enliven their fellowship is not eloquence or provocation or knowledge or spirituality but is instead the simple though absurd belief that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and resurrected. And the simple but also difficult commitment to living now in light of their own coming resurrection. And so, Paul writes, be imitators of me. Not of them, he sang, but of me. And then he warns them not to be carried away by, quote, the talk of all these arrogant people. The talk of all of these arrogant people. Boy, there's a lot of such talk today, isn't there? So much talk. 
And boy, we are prone to taking the bait the way the Corinthians took the bait, aren't we? Hearing something smart, something knowledgeable, sophisticated that someone says about Jesus or the Bible. And quickly determining that we can no longer be in fellowship with those simpler, unenlightened believers who don't understand this. Hearing something provocative that someone says about Christian living and immediately assigning moral authority to that person because what they've said happens to align with our own political and social opinions. Hearing something spiritual that someone says about Christian faith and immediately assuming that it must be true and edifying because it happens to make us feel good. Oh, there's a lot of talking out there in the name of Jesus. So much talking. But the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. That's what the Apostle Paul writes here in this passage. The kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. Being smart and knowledgeable, being spiritual, having moral conviction. These things are all praiseworthy and laudable. Paul was knowledgeable, Paul was spiritual, Paul definitely had moral convictions. But the kingdom of God depends not on knowledgeable or spiritual or moral talk. But on the very power of God that rings true in a Christian believer through the expression of his or her life. Just because someone says something smart doesn't mean he or she is any more enlightened about God's coming kingdom than anyone else. Just because someone says something spiritual doesn't mean he or she is any closer to God than anyone else. Just because someone says something morally provocative in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that he or she is any more morally righteous than anyone else. Just because someone talks doesn't mean that he or she really has something to say. Just because someone talks doesn't mean that his or her life can really back them up. That's what I learned that day as an eight-year-old. And that is what Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians of in our epistle lesson for today. And that is what we would all do well to remember in a time when there are more people talking than ever. So let me draw to a close by telling you about another eight-year-old now. About 
another eight-year-old and her six-year-old sister. Tuesday morning, this past Tuesday morning, we were on our way to school when out of nowhere, Ada began singing, In this place among these people, God is worshipped, God is praised. That's right, our weekly song of fellowship right here at Boulevard Baptist Church. And no sooner had Ada begun singing than Juliana began singing with her. And here ultimately is what I heard these little girls sing. We are living the gospel story. Lives are changed and mountains moved. Won't you come and work among us? You are welcomed. You are loved. We are living the gospel story they sang. And then you know what happened not five minutes later? We parked the car and I walked them to the corner of the sidewalk that leads into their school and they both offered their hands to me and Ada said, Daddy, pray. Living the gospel story. Not just talking about it. It's all the difference in the world. He never said a mumbling word. So many of us as Jesus' followers sing these words each year on Good Friday as we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. He never said a mumbling word. He stood before kings and governors and crowds and mobs and rather than rehearse his bona fides, rather than speak in the tongues of angels and academics, rather than flaunt his deep spirituality, rather than berate his opposition and extol his own righteousness, rather than do any of that, he never said a mumbling word. Because he knew he didn't have to say a word. Because he knew that the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. And because he knew that the example of his own life had already done all of the talking that anyone could ever need to hear. For he knew that he had been living the gospel story. And with that, he knew that whether one accepted that story as true or not, that whether one followed him or not, that whether one believed in the righteousness of his way or not, Jesus knew that the real persuasiveness of the gospel depended not on lofty talk, but on the external power of God opening one's eyes to see its truth. Surely this man is the Son of God. 
That Roman centurion said as Jesus breathed his last there beside him on the cross. He never said a mumbling word as he hung there. And that silence was the very thing that compelled that centurion to believe. For the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. Oh, let us be imitators of Him. Amen. As we prepare to sing our hymn of response, I will be down front to receive any who might this day want to become imitators of Him. Following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would love to pray with you. Just as I will be down front to receive any who might this day want to formally join Boulevard Baptist Church.